Thank you for taking a few minutes out of your day to listen to this message. This is the Journey Church Podcast. Our hope is that it leads you closer to Jesus and encourages you to live your life on mission for Him. For more information about our church and how you can get involved in what God is doing at Journey, please visit jrny.church. Do me a favor, as loud as you can, let's put our hands together and make some noise as we welcome everyone else at all of our other campuses. You've never been here before and you're here in Phoenix with us. Uh, we get the opportunity to join with four other buildings, other campuses in Montgomeryville, in Plymouth Meeting, Limerick, Royersford, and then a bunch of people also watching online. And so we love technology and what it enables us to do as a church and uh, are grateful that we all get to be here today. And I believe no matter what campus you're on, no matter what seat that you're at, uh, no, matter, no matter if this is your first time or you've been, like God has something very specific he wants to speak to your life today. Uh, and, and if you're here, he wants to do something incredible. I also want to kind of build for next week. And so this is the last Sunday of this sermon series we've been called Hunting History. And, and sometimes we do a series and I think it's, it's, you know, it's more difficult to invite somebody to church because maybe you'll say, look, what are you talking about? Well, we're talking about hunting. Well, what do you mean hunting at church? Well, you know, it's, we're, I don't know, just come to church. And so uh, <laughs> next week we're going to talk about marriage. And uh, that affects a lot of people. And there's a lot of people that you know, uh, maybe you're one of them, uh, but even beside you that are struggling in their marriage, uh, you know, uh, you see their post on Facebook, you hear how they talk at, the, at, the, at, at, at work, and you know that right now their, their marriage is a difficult part of, of their life. And I think getting them to church and allowing them to hear the word of God uh, could be healing. And more importantly than just hearing the word of God, getting them into the presence of God can change people's lives forever and heal marriages. And then on top of that, maybe it's a, it's a segue into getting them to come on Monday night to the marriage class and just watching God do something over the next, the next month. Here's what I know. Uh, what you focus on always gets better. You know that? Like if you, if you wake up and you focus on, if your marriage right now is, is, is feeling strained and it feels distant, I guarantee you the amount of work or focus that you put into it right now is different than the amount of work or focus that you put when you were trying to win that person, right? And so we're going to talk next week about that because I think a lot of times we, we drift apart, but you don't drift apart by accident. You do that when you begin to, to not work. The Bible says uh, if you want to fall back in love, you need to return to the, the way you did things in the beginning. Uh, you don't fall in love and then just stay there. That takes no work. Falling in love to stay in love takes a lot of work. And so uh, we're going to kind of open that up next week and go through. I believe God wants to do something in our marriage. If you're going to be married, you might as well have a good marriage, right? Can I get an amen? You're going to spend the majority of your life with that person and waking up, looking at them, going to bed, looking at them, fighting with them, arguing about, you know, who didn't pick up this and who did this and what, and spending time with your in-laws and all that stuff. And if you're going to get married and be like that, you might as well put the work in and have a good marriage. And so take the opportunity. And some of you are not married right now, or you have, you know, you're, you're divorced and you're like, I don't want to be around a marriage because it's going to, it's going to pull up, you know, old wounds and all that stuff. Don't skip church because it's not all about you. Amen. Right? If you skip church because the message is not all about you, I can tell you something, you never get anything from church if that is your mindset. I come when it's about me. And so if they're not preaching on something that affects me, I'm not coming to church. Come anyways. Like, come anyways. Seek the face of the Lord. Ask him to speak to you. I promise you there'll be something in the marriage talk that will affect you in your singleness, in your work, somewhere like that. Don't skip church because the message is not all about you. That's an awful thing to do. And so we are ending our sermon series this, this week uh, called Hunting History uh, with the, the title of my message being Drag, Drag the Dream. Drag, Drag the Dream. So we talked about uh, positioning yourself. We've talked about patience. 
Uh, last week, I encouraged you, you got to take the shot at some point. You got you to take the chance. You got to do the thing God has called you to do. Today, I want to talk to you, uh, kind of wrap this message series up. And I want to talk to you because really, um, after you kill, if, you, if you're a hunter, after you shoot something, you've waited, you position up, you kill it, the real work actually begins after all that happens. Like you would think, I waited around, I shot, you know, I shot, and everything is done, I can breathe heavy, but, and I'm not a hunter, maybe this is your first Sunday here, I'm not, I'm not a hunter, but I went on a, on a hunting excursion with somebody, and by excursion, I mean we went to their cabin, I was in the cabin, he killed a deer, I said, can I come out and watch you do this, so that I know what I'm talking about when I'm talking about hunting, and so I came out, he killed it, he gutted it, I drove, drove the forward out, walked through the woods, we tracked it down, and then I was like, okay, what do we do, what do we do now, he's like, we drag this thing. And I'm like, you drag it where? We drag it out of the woods. And I was like, well, where's the path? Like, where's, is it going to be airlifted? Like, how are we getting this thing out? And at that time, it was me and a few other guys with him. And so we could help him do this. I, I was like, well, let me, let me just participate so that I can feel like I'm, I'm a real man for once. And so let me participate, carry this thing out. And I asked him, I said, if nobody's here, like, how do you get this thing out? He says, just sure brute force. You put these straps on your, on your shoulders. You strap the, the, the legs, the hind legs together. And you just drag that thing. And you go over branches and through creeks and sticker bushes and all these things that I don't want to be involved in. And it takes a lot of time and a lot of effort. And I thought to myself, man, it's amazing. You spend all that time. You're patient, position yourself, get up early, take the shot, and then the real work starts after you make the kill. Like the real work starts. And I got to tell you something, that principle is true if you want to see God not only start something incredible in your life, but finish it. It's a true principle because I've seen, I've been around a lot of people who have watched God open up ridiculously miraculous doors in their life, healed marriages, broken addiction. And if you ask me, have they completed it? Did they keep going? I've watched a lot of people find success and then walk away from God. I've watched them begin the course, God, to do incredible things. Because the point of this message is seek the miraculous power of God. Allow him to open up doors. Stay patient. Position yourself. Take the shot. But this is kind of a warning. This is kind of an eye-opener. This is kind of, hey, I want you to understand Asking God to do incredible things in your life is great, but you need to make sure you understand the real work starts after that. So let me give you an example. Getting married is one thing. Staying married is another thing. It's easy to fall in love, you know, semi-easy to plan a wedding. You just got to spend $45,000. You don't have to do that, by the way. That's an awful waste of money. And so uh, do that, and then you get married. And here's the thing. Every married person will say the real work begins after what? The I do's. The cameras go away. The hashtags are no more, right? Everybody goes back to, and you're just married, and you got to work. That's when the real, I'm not saying you're dragging your spouse, but there's days it feels like that. Having a kid is the easy part, right? I mean, making is the fun part. Having the, having the baby is, I mean, it, easy for me, not you if you're a girl, right? But then it's like, then you get the baby and the real work begins, am I right? Like you, you, it, 
Starting a business, starting a church. For me, I started a church. Starting a church is not that much work. You got to have some money. You got to be creative. You got to come up with some core values, cool, cool website, vision statement, mission statement. If you're not a church, you know, pastor, you don't know what that means. It's, you know, just this is what we're going to do. This is what we're going to be about. Give me a website. Give me a Facebook page. Back in 2005, I'll start a MySpace page and we'll start this stuff. We'll start this church. We'll have this big grand opening. That was not the hard part. It was continuing to go. It felt like many times you were dragging that dream. The real work starts after God opens the door. And the thing is, what I want you to understand is I want you to understand the significance of this because a lot of people quit after the dream starts. They, they give up after the dream starts. They mess up. Success ruins a lot of people. You can go into scripture and you can see it. There's, there's examples. There's a man named Samson. God, God, God calls him, and he's, his story's in the book of Judges, and, and it's, man, he's going to be have incredible strength, and he's going to be, you know, judge to my people, and, and just incredible things for me. And no matter how much that this, the successful he was, it was like Samson couldn't drag the dream to completion. He just kept falling. He kept, girls kept getting in the way. And he, he, he don't, don't talk about, you know, your hair. Don't cut your hair. Hey, what's the secret to your strength? You know, well, you're sleeping with me, so I'll tell you. And you see success kind of ruin this. David, the life of David, he gets anointed to be king. I mean, he sees God move in miraculous ways. Not only does he kill Goliath, then he sees the protection of God until he, it's his time to become king. He becomes king. You think the rest would be easy. And as soon as he becomes king, he starts to make really bad decisions, one of which is he has an affair with one of his best friend's wives. A wife gets her pregnant, kills off uh, one of his best friends, and stuff kind of goes haywire from there. This ripple effect in his life. And it's this whole principle. It's one thing to get to that open door. It's another thing to continue to walk into that, into that destiny. And I want to talk to you about this today. I want you to understand something about, about when God does great things in your life. And I, Winston Churchill said this many years ago. And I think it's, a, it's, a, it's an impactful quote that maybe you should remember it because it's, it's biblically true. You ready for it? Uh, he, he said years ago, he said, the price of greatness is responsibility. The price of greatness in your life is... So here's the thing. That marriage is a responsibility God has entrusted you with. That kid is a responsibility God has entrusted you with. That career, those talents, whatever opportunity that God has given you is a responsibility that God has entrusted you with. And how you handle it is really important. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to give you three things that you should do with responsibilities. I started them all with R, so you'll remember them. These will enable you to finish well what God has started in your life, and not only finish well, but to see him do even more. Because I'm not satisfied, are you? I want God to do more in my life. If my heart is still beating, I don't want the best of my life to be in my 20s and my 30s. I want the best parts of my life to be out in the, in the future, right? And you should have that same expectation of God. So let me give you three real or, 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 or truths about godly responsibility. Number one is this, is I think, I think really importantly, there's a reality to the responsibility. There's a reality to the responsibility. And I want to show you a couple passages, and actually they're interactions between Jesus and his disciples. And here's why. Uh, he's getting his disciples prepared uh, for something more than they can even imagine. They're just normal men, but they are going to be in the mix of changing the history of the world. Jesus is going to be with them for three years. He's going to die. He's going to raise from the dead. And then he's going to send 11 of the 12 into all the world to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. And they're going to go from relatively unknown to, to names that people would know. Many people would hate them. Many people would idolize them. By the way, if you're not prepared to handle either one of those, you're not prepared to handle God's future for you. 
You need to learn how to push away when people celebrate you. You need to learn how to push away when people hate you. You need to learn how to stay the course. And we could talk about that another time, but he is getting them ready because they're going to go from relatively unknown and be involved in, in, a, in, a, in a purpose and in a, in a, in a plan that's going to change the world forever. And they don't fully understand this while they're with Jesus. They just think Jesus has picked them to start this kingdom, this earthly kingdom. They know about kingdoms because the Romans at that point are kind of having them enslaved and making them pay taxes. And so Jesus keeps talking about this kingdom, but it's not of this world, but they're, they're humans like us. And so they're kind of naive to the whole thing. And then one day, I love this interaction in the book of Matthew chapter 20, uh, in verse number 20, the Bible says that the mother of two of them, James and John, uh, the Bible says that the mother of Zebedee's sons comes to Jesus with her sons and kneels down and asks him a favor. Anybody have a mom like this? They're grown men, and Jesus is standing there, and the mom comes to ask them for something, right? For her sons, right? And this is what the Bible says. What is it you want? She said, grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right and the other at your left in your kingdom. And he says this, you don't know what you're asking. You, you, you don't know what you're asking. Can you drink the cup I'm going to drink? And they shout out from behind their mother, we can, right? Jesus said to them, you will indeed drink the, from the same cup. Now, what they didn't understand is what he was saying is, the cup that I'm going to drink is a cup of death and sacrifice. Your mom is asking for permission for you two to be next in line to, to sit in sacrifice and pain as you follow me in the kingdom of God is spread. What does she say? No, no, I want them to sit beside you because to her, to her, that responsibility that, that they're going to be given is one of importance. You're going to be the right, you're going to be left, and that means you're the most important in the kingdom of God. Let's not worry about the other 10, by the way. Don't tell them this will be a little deal between me and your, and your mom, right? And you have this situation going out, and I love, I love what he says in this. He says, he says, you don't know what you're asking for. And I think a lot of times in your life, when you're asking God to do things, some of you are like, I want to get married. You don't know what you're asking for. Come on, can we just be honest? You think, if you're a dude, you're like, you know, their clothes are just going to be off all the time. Let's just, let's just lead a segue into, into this, and, you know, they're going to take care of everything. And, you know, I look at, you know, let me, can I, just, I don't know how many kids are in here. Your kids shouldn't be in here, by the way. You don't want to bring your kids in here next week when we're talking about marriage, because I can promise you they're going to learn something that they should not learn from me. But if you wanted to, I have no problem teaching them. But you got, you got guys, very selfish, very, like, just think about yourself. And you grew up in a world where pornography is kind of rampant. And so you just think, and this is for girls, so you just think that women are there to meet your needs. Or maybe a guy, and then you, you get married, you're like, this is not what I asked for. They, have, they, have, they want to talk to me? And, like, they want me to go on dates with them, and they want, they want me to make time for them? And like, I got like, you don't know what you're asking. You're like, I want a baby. I just want a baby. If you just, my marriage is already a mess. If you just gave us a baby, we would all be better. You don't know what you're asking for. You don't know what you're at. Some of you are like, I want a different job. I want more responsibility. I want to be a better and bigger leader. I want to be more responsible for other people. I want to be the boss. You don't know what you're asking for. There is a reality to the responsibility, and oftentimes we don't know what we're asking God to do. We don't know what that entails. I'll give you an example. In my own life, years and years and years ago, I think my dad is in here today, and I've talked about this story before, and I blamed him for it, right, because I was younger. Now that I'm older, I realize as I parent that, that most of the things that, dumb things that happen to my kids, even though they blame me, are their fault, right? So we're playing catch, me and my dad, five years old. I'm in Boyertown. 
in the back of our, our house on 4th Street. He can attest to this. Uh, we have a little fenced-in yard. Uh, at that point, it seemed much bigger than it was. I've driven by there. You know, it might have been a 20 by 20 yard or something like that. Playing, playing, playing catch. And when I mean playing catch, I'm, in fifth, I'm a five-year-old. He's rolling the ball to me. And he's doing what, what dad's He's playing catch with me. I'm picking the ball back up. I'm throwing it back. I'm getting cocky right? I'm getting real cocky. I tell him to bounce the ball to me. He bounces me a couple. I scoop them up. You know, at that point, uh, if you're not a baseball fan, you probably won't understand some of these, but you have Ozzie Smith, you have Kirby Puckett, you have all these Ken Griffey Juniors coming on the scene. Like, these are my heroes. Daryl Strawberry, I know he was a man, but Daryl Strawberry was my, my hero back then. And so, and, and, and I, I was throwing it back, and I was just imagining myself. I was just hopping back and throwing it back, and I was becoming a legend in my head, which I think sometimes do this with God. We like become a legend in our own head. Well, I can handle more. Bring it on. So I looked at my dad and I said, Dad, throw me a high popper. If you're not a baseball player, you don't know what a high popper is. That, that one, you throw the ball, you know, 2,500 feet in the air. It comes down. You get underneath it. You snag that ball and you throw it back, right? You, you skip back, throw the ball back. And so I said, throw me a high popper. You know what my dad said because he's a good dad? No. <laughs> you know what I kept doing? Throw me the ball. Throw me the high popper. Throw me the ball. This is dumb, Right? I can, I, like, throw me a high popper. And so finally my father relented because sometimes good fathers go, I'm going to show you you're not ready. I'm going to let you learn this, right? So he threw me a high popper. And I would like to say that I got under the, under the ball. You know, I tapped my glove a few times. I snagged it out. You know, my left hand snagged it out, threw it back to him, like Ken Griffey Jr., all that stuff. And, and that's not what happened because I had never caught a high popper. I put my glove over here. The ball came here, <laughs> hit me in the face. I remember, like, threw my glove down, ran in, told my dad I'm never playing baseball again. Complete overreaction, by the way. And the truth is, there was a reality to the responsibility that I wanted, and the reality is that I was not ready to catch a high popper. It was not his fault. It was that I didn't know what I was asking for. And I think before you, listen, before you say, I'm going to stay patient, I'm going to position myself, I'm going to take the shot, I'm going to pray that God would open up, those are all good prayers. Make sure you are aware of the reality of the responsibility of what you're asking for. Like there's been moments in my life where I've realized the reality of the responsibility. When I first got married to my wife, I had only grown up in a boy's house. I didn't know anything about girls really. Like I remember going to Sears with my parents and standing in. She would look at clothes. And that was the extent of my understanding of, of females. I was a male. My brother was a male. You know, we, when we got ready in the morning, it, we brushed your teeth was optional. You needed some L.A. gear, L.A., you know, looks, hair gel. And you went to, went to that. That's what you did. Like it's a 10-minute it's a process start to finish, right? So I, I got married and... And I started to realize, man, and some of you have experienced this, there's a lot more that goes into a woman getting ready. Like there's makeup and there's skincare and there's, you know, blow dryers and curling irons and straight irons and, you know, weed whackers and all this other stuff <laughs> goes involved. And like there's just a lot. It's a long time. And I remember the first time we went to, I went to a, 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 a store called Dillard's. You know, if you're not from the South, it's like Boscov's. And uh, we went to the makeup counter and I got my first education on makeup. And we were standing there, I'm like, and I'm, she's, she's getting something called, now I know what it's called, it's called foundation, all right? And I know what it is because I've used it for many years in my 20s because it covers up your zits. It's amazing. I'd be in my wife's thing wiping it on my face before I got up to preach. And so now I pray for zits because it means I'm still young and it doesn't happen. And so, uh, but then I did. And so I remember going there and, and she, was, she would take the foundation with the lady and she would rub it on her hand and look at it. And she, she had her, she, by the time she was done, she had her shirt pulled like this and she had 25 different and I was like, how long does this take? 
and how, and how, like and now as a as a forty year old, I realize like in Amazon you're just gonna see foundation and toner and you know this skincare and this and you know this is coming and this is coming and it's like Amazon guys are part of my fa- family now. I didn't realize all that. And maybe you're white. You're like, my wife doesn't do makeup. Okay, oils or something like that or natural stuff. Like it, women and men tend to just be be a little different. And I didn't realize that. And I had what I would call a reality moment that the responsibility of me being a husband to this woman was gonna cause me. Many times, if I was going to be a good husband, to lose massive years of my life at the makeup section of Dillard's, right? Like it's just part. You ever, you ever, you ever have a, when, you, when you had a baby and your and your and the doctor gave you the baby, and your time was running out at the at the hospital, and you knew they were about to release you to go into the to the real world, and you had this moment where you they were like, okay, you are now what responsible for this baby, and you have this. For the next 80 years of my life. <laughs> there's this reality, right? There's this reality of it. And he, he, this is what I want to kick in. I want you to look at what God brings to you and have a moment where you realize this is a big deal. Like what God has brought to me is a much bigger deal than I can imagine. And I got to tell you something. As a Christian, it starts with your salvation. Some of you don't understand it because even your salvation, you're like, it's not that big of a deal. It costs Jesus everything. I get it. Like, it costs him everything so that he could have a relationship with me. But to me, it's not that big of a deal, which I would say always go back to Philippians 2, verse number 12, where it says, my dear friends, uh, as, as you have always obeyed, do not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation in what? In fear and in trembling. It's this, it's this understanding of the reality of the responsibility of what he's given you. Do you keep yourself saved? No. Are you walking around going, okay, I'm afraid that I'm going to lose my salvation? No. I don't think you can lose your salvation, but I got to tell you something. After reading some scripture, I do think you can leave it. I do think that. I think you can choose to say, I'm not going to follow Christ anymore. I'm going to walk away from it. That's intentional. You don't lose something on purpose, right? You're not walking around going, I lost my kid. It happens by accident. You leave. You're like, I'm done with you right now. Stay with your mom. See the, the, the difference. There's this moment where you understand the realities of the responsibilities that you've been given. It's a maturing process. It's the process, if you're a parent, that you love when your kids begin to understand. When they begin to, begin to understand, every time you throw a Pop-Tart out, you don't eat two Pop-Tarts, you only eat one Pop-Tart. That costs money. I'm going to take you to the store, and I'm going to show you. And they start to realize, man, baths cost money. You can't take three baths a day. You can't do that. I remember a time in my life when I couldn't get you to bathe, and now you're in the bathe full time. You're in the bathtub full time, right? Like, I can't get you. Then there's this reality where they start to understand, like, this stuff costs money. Like, this is a big deal. What I'm telling you is if God begins to do something in your life, if he brings that opportunity, look at it as a responsibility and look at it in a realistic mindset. It's a, it's a big deal. So the question is, what's the next step? I'll tell you the next step, number two, is there are then, if you understand the concept, the principle, there are requirements then to the responsibilities God brings to your life. If he entrusts you with things, there are requirements. Oftentimes, you want the blessing without the burdens. We want to get married without having to go to the makeup counter. We want kids without losing any sleep. We want to build a successful business without any personal sacrifice or loss of friendship. We want God to give us things without any accountability or requirements, and it's simply not the case. 
Not only is there a reality moment where you go, this is a big deal, this is a responsibility, then you begin to ask yourself, okay, what are the requirements? What, how should I be handling this? And Jesus talks about this in Scripture. He shares a parable. And a parable is just similar to what I do when I say, hey, I got hit in the face one time when I was playing catch with my dad, and it was because I, was not, I didn't know what I was asking for. You go, how does that relate to the, to the Bible? You figure it out, right? Like that's, This is what Je- Jesus would tell a story in language people would understand. And he's talking about this whole concept of responsibility. He said, there's like, it's like a manager. And he gives, he gives his, his stewards, his people that work for him, uh, the, the responsibility of feeding the hungry, feeding people, giving out portions of food. And he says, there's some that, that they begin to grow weary of him coming back and they don't really you know, care because they haven't seen him for a long time. And they begin to do whatever they want. And there's others that they're just naive and they just you know, do whatever they want with the food. But there's other people who understand the weight of their responsibility and begin to say, well, what are the requirements? What does our master want us to do? And then he says this in Luke chapter 12, verse 40. He says, from everyone who has been given much, watch what it says, much will be demanded. From whoever has been given much and from the one who has been entrusted with much, much more will be asked. In other words, privilege brings responsibility and responsibility entails accountability, right? Responsibility, another word for that is actually, if you look at it right, is liabilities. And how you handle what God brings into your life is really important to God. It's really important to God. And here's the thing. If you want more, if you say, okay, I said, everybody wants God to do more. If you want God to do more in your life, how you handle whatever he has currently put into your life determines if he can bring more to your life. That is a principle in life. Some of you are like, I don't, this is dumb. Like what he gave me is not a big deal. It is to him. There's a reality to the responsibility, and then there's some requirements to the responsibility. And then lastly, number three, here's where I want to land. There's what I would call a response to the responsibility. There's a responsiveness. So here's, so, so there's a, I want you to see it as a responsibility. I want you to understand God is really concerned with how you, how you handle it. So whatever you're at, if you're in school right now, stop looking at it as something that you know, just happened. Look, this is God, this is a responsibility. God, how am I handling it? If you have a baby, God, this, obviously this is a response, responsibility. A new job, God, this is a responsibility. What are the requirements? Well, if he gives you something and he entrusts you with something, much is going to be demanded from you. And so here is the correct response. And, and r- really you need to understand what he's saying is just handle it with the type of care that that I would handle it with. And so I want to give you two things that I think are really important as he steps you into responsibility that I I have tried to practice in my my own life because I, I want more. I want more responsibility. I want God to be able to do more with my life. When I read in the Bible where it says God is able to do immeasurably more than I could ever ask you or imagine, right? According to him. I, I want that. I want to see God do that in my life, with my life. I, I, I want to see him take me to places that I could not get to on my own and speak things to me that I could not speak on my own and give me opportunities to, to bring him glory and honor that I could not get without him. So the thing is, you have to then understand the correct response. I think it would be a really bad place to leave you off at the requirements. Here, much will be demanded from you. Good luck when you get to heaven someday. Like, let's cross our fingers. So I want to just give you, give you this, end with this, and it's really all about handling success. And Jesus spoke again in Matthew 23, and I think he, he did this. He said, let me, let, me, let me show you the correct response to success with his, with his disciples. And he, and he did it as he kind of uh, contrasted them to the religious people of that day. He said they, they had been given this responsibility to speak on God's behalf and to tell people the rules, and it had went to their head, like it legitimately. They, they were so 
prideful at that moment, the Bible says that Jesus looked at them and said, look, they dress a certain way to let everybody know that they're so godly. They wear these boxes on their head. The Bible calls them phylacteries. And inside the box was the word of God on a scroll. And they kept making these boxes bigger and bigger. So they're wearing these big old boxes on their head to let everybody know how religious that they were. When they gave, they would play trumpets and let everybody know they were given to the poor. When they prayed, uh, Jesus said they prayed really loud, like really, really loud with really big, big words to let everybody know how godly that they were. And he says, I want to get you ready because you actually are going to be given a platform soon. Your platform is a big responsibility. And I want you to know how to respond when this happens, when stuff starts to go, when people start to know your name, when you become the leaders of this church that's going to change this world. I want you to understand how to respond, this responsiveness to this. And so in Matthew chapter 23, in verse number 12, he says this. He says, first, he says, I want you to remember, for those who exalt themselves, they will be humbled. And those who humble themselves will be exalted. So the very first thing I tell myself all the time in any responsibility that I've been given, as I know I'm going to be held accountable for it, and there's a reality to it. First thing I always tell myself is make sure you keep your heart humble. And I got to tell you something. That's really difficult. It's, it's a challenge to keep your heart humble. The opposite of humility is pride, by the way. So the Bible tells us the more humble that you say, to stay, the more God can use your life. But it also tells us pride comes and then the fall. And pride is really hard to see. I've done a lot of studies on, on pride. And uh, basically, they always say, well, just, just do, the, do, do the math, do the English. Like the middle of the word pride is so interesting is, is what? Anybody know? It's, it's I. So when, when, you, when you are talking about you all the time, so I read some, some examples before and I thought they were funny. He said, here's how you know you struggle with pride and here's how I know I struggle with it. Is it one funny example was if you take a picture in a group of people and somebody gives you the camera and you are the first person you look for in that picture, you probably struggle with pride. Which by the way, every time I take a picture I do that. One time, me and my wife were in, were in our first years of marriage, and she can tell you the story. We, we were fighting, and you know, I had a habit of doing, like, just smacking the wall or knocking, a, knocking, a, knocking a, a picture frame off of it, breaking in, and just stupid stuff that, as a 40-year-old, I look back, and go, you're such an idiot because you made a mess, and you had to clean it up, right? And the one time she came back, and, you know, one picture was still this picture that was right center in our thing. She said, well, why didn't you knock that picture off? To my response was, in that picture, I look good. <laughs> True story. And we are still married 18 years later, so there's hope for you. And I've learned my lesson in my ways. But that's just what we do. I started studying pride this week. It's because it's easy, it's easy to miss, and it, and it reveals itself in really subtle ways, right? Do you have a hidden desire for praise and admiration of, of people? Do you insist on being right? That's my spiritual gift, by the way. The desire, I feel like I, I, I am right all the time. Like, it's just what God gave me. And so... The desire to be no Do you have a desire to be noticed and appreciated? Do you have a fear of rejection? See, sometimes you're like, well, I'm not prideful because, because I, when, when I go into a room, you know, I'm just really quiet. Pride. Not quiet like I'm waiting for people to talk to me. Quiet like Pennsylvania awkward quiet. That's, that, that's weird quiet, right? Like you make everybody else feel weird that you just walked in the room. That's really a fear of rejection, which is, which is pride, right? Do you have a preoccupation with myself or your feelings, or your needs, your circumstances, your burdens, your desires, your successes, your failures? These are all deadly fruits of the root of pride. And pride will separate you from God and take you away from his purposes and plans faster than you can imagine. Humility allows you to be continually promoted. Keep your heart humble. 
I say these things to myself often uh, because I don't want to become prideful, and so i got to remind myself of things. Like, here, here's some of the things I remind myself of, that, that you can do good without having to hear great job. Isn't that freeing? You can do good without anybody telling you great job. You can do right without having to be rewarded right away. Like, I can do something that's right, and I can go, okay, I'm just going to let God do what he needs to do. I've got to be rewarded right away. I don't need a gold star right away. I don't need a shout out from somebody right away. You can be giving without others being grateful. You, you can just give. It doesn't matter what they say. You can be successful without stealing the spotlight from the Lord. You, you can be okay with going unnoticed, and you can be okay with being underappreciated. Why? The Bible says in James 4, God opposes the proud, but what does he do? He shows favor to the humble. Your very first response to the responsibilities God has given you is no matter what he does, no matter how big it gets, keep your heart humble. As soon as you lose that humble heart and pride starts to well up in you and you become offended and you want people to appreciate, the Bible says pride comes and then the fall. And number, number two, Jesus, I think he teaches them to keep your head down. In Matthew 23, verse number five, he says this. He says, everything they do it is done for people to see it being done. It's almost like Jesus was talking about our time. Like, remember that whole thing, if a tree falls in the forest, does it make a sound? Remember that? You ever hear that? No? Okay. I think it affects us here because I think we, we live in a society where Jesus would have related even today because we, it's as if, if we do something for the Lord and nobody knows that we did it for the Lord, it didn't actually happen. He, 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 like, he, we struggle with this. Like, it, people need to see me. People need to know what I'm doing. People, I fasted. I got to tell everybody I fasted. Which, by the way, Scripture tells you to tell nobody. I gave to a homeless person. I need to post it on Facebook so I can encourage everybody else. Not really. You could just do it and not say anything. Like, I did kind stuff. Even in your marriage, think about it. I hung my wife's robe up. I needed to let her know. Did you? I cleaned. Let the world know. Like, everything we do, we live in a world, it's as if nobody noticed we done, we've done it, that it didn't actually happen. But Jesus teaches a different principle in Matthew chapter 6. It's a really important principle. He deals with the exact same attitude. He says, hey, people are giving. They're telling everybody what they're doing. They're fasting. They're telling everybody what they're doing. They're praying. Letting everybody know how loud. They pray these long, ridiculous prayers with these big words. He said, don't do any of that. And in Matthew chapter 6, he says this at the very end of verse number 4. He says, then your father who sees what is done in secret, what does the Bible say he'll do? As soon as you bring it to the public, the reward is gone. You're going to keep your heart humble. You're going to keep your head down. I've been telling people for years in counseling. This is what I tell them. I say, if you keep doing the right thing, you'll never end up in the wrong place. I don't know how, to, how long it's going to take you to get there. You just keep your heart humble. You keep your head down, and you will never end up in the wrong place. In other words, everything you do does not need to be seen or heard. You don't need to parade everything you do in the public eye. You don't need to self-promote. Some of you need to write this down. You don't need to self-promote. It'll bring temporary commotion, but only God can bring purposeful promotion. You don't need to fish. You know what fishing is? Somebody tell me I'm good. Right? Somebody tell me I did a good job. I, I get it. Somebody. Let me hook a sucker somewhere. Right? Never go fishing. Watch what the Bible says in Proverbs 27. Let someone else praise you and not your own mouth. An outsider and not your own lips. Let, let it come from somewhere else and not from you. You're going to keep your head down. You're going to keep your heart humble. 
And this is the way that you get to continue to see as soon as it becomes about you. And you need to remember this as God does stuff in your life. It's going to be worked through you, but it's never going to be about you. Your marriage is not about you. It's not. Your marriage is a testimony to the goodness and grace of God. It's people being able to go, if somebody will marry that person with all your mistakes, maybe there's still hope for me. Your kids are not about you. Your kids are a gift from God. And they have been given to you to point glory and honor back to him. Your job is not about you. Your social media should not be about you. It should not be about you. Anytime you become great, he he decreases in your life. If you want him to keep working in your life and using your life, keep your heart humble. Keep your head down. Keep your heart humble. Keep your head down. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes with me? All over this house. It feels like a good spot to stop this series. Feels like a good period at the end. It's not over. We're going to keep moving together. But it feels like a good spot to transition. So we're here right now. And uh, we're going to pray together as we close. And I'm going to pray that God uh, brings success to your life, but that you are ready to handle it. That success is just responsibility. And you are able to be trusted with responsibility. You are able to handle it. And it won't handle you. You will keep your head down and you will keep your heart humble. That you will desire to point other people back to Jesus. Through his goodness and his grace. And as we we close in prayer. uh, Nobody in these rooms was was under a rock this week. And you know that uh, death came unexpectedly and quickly somebody that most of us know, have watched, follow, have some form of connection to. And I think it's, it's fitting as we end this service, because I think there's probably somebody here today that that jolted you. You're like, man, life ends quickly. And that's true. That's true. Like, I don't, the Bible tells us that often. Let's not brag about what we're going to do in five years, because you know, that, those, those aren't promised to you. Tomorrow's not even promised to you. All you have is right now. And I think anytime we're confronted with the reality of the aggressive nature of death, that it maybe it jolts us into thinking about things differently. And I got to tell you something. Uh, death is, does come quickly sometimes, unexpectedly. But, but I need you to hear me. I'm not afraid of it. Some of you say, that, that sounds, that sounds kind of bold. And the reason I'm not afraid of it is because I have a relationship with Jesus Christ. And I know that, that death on this earth, physical death on this earth, this earth, does not have victory over my spiritual body. That I am more than just this physical body, that I'm a spirit. That God breathed life into me, that he molded me, that he formed me. And my spirit has been saved. And the promise of resurrection has, has been given to me through what Jesus did for me on the cross. And the promise of scripture is when I take my last breath on this earth, whether it's at 40 or whether it's at 80 or 100 years old or whatever in between, that the Bible says my next breath will be with Jesus in heaven. And so I'm not afraid. I'm secure. I have peace that surpasses all understanding. I have hope. And I think there's somebody in this room at all of our campuses right now that would say, you know what, I don't. I'm not sure about what happens after death. I'm not sure about where I stand with God. I'm not sure, you know, about this whole thing, what this looks like. And I got to tell you something. 
Everything about eternity hinges on one decision. One decision. Isn't that crazy? It hinges on the decision if you've given your life to Jesus Christ, if you received him as your Lord and Savior. That's the, that's the decision. It's in that decision that eternity is secure, that sins are forgiven. The Bible says that dead people, they become alive in Christ. That broken people are put back together. They're redeemed. That one decision, and this is why I love church, because at the end of every Sunday, uh, we get to give people the opportunity to respond and make that decision. It's the best thing that I get to do. It's the best thing that I get to do. I get to celebrate with heaven, and I get to watch God's sons and daughters respond to his call, his love, his mercy, his grace. And I I get to lead people week in and week out in a simple prayer. And the prayer is not this long, drawn-out religious prayer. It's just, Jesus, I need you right now. I can't do life on my own anymore. Jesus, come into my life. Forgive my sins. Set me free. Be my Lord. Be my Savior. I commit the rest of, of my life to you. And I love to watch people step into that reality because the Bible says that in that moment, all of heaven stops to celebrate. So listen. He knows you, he loves you, he cares about you, he got you to this place right now, and he's knocking at the door of your heart, and all you need to do is respond. So what do I do? The Bible says if you confess with your mouth and believe and you confess that you're a sinner and you need Jesus Christ to save you, and you believe that it's through his death, burial, and resurrection that you have forgiveness of sin and the promise of eternity, the Bible says that you are saved. It's not about cleaning yourself up, making yourself right, coming back a few more weeks. It's a decision to receive the gift of God through Jesus Christ. So we're going to close in prayer, friend. Nobody's looking around all over our campuses. And uh, you know, today, today something's different. God has spoken to you in a real way. And your heart is beating really fast right now. And you're afraid. Listen, one step of courage is all I'm going to ask for. One step of courage is all God needs. And so I'm going to ask you in a second if you need to respond to Jesus Christ. And I'm not calling you forward and I'm not making everybody else looking around. they got their own stuff to deal with. But if that's you, one step of courage, you're just going to shoot your hand straight up in the air. And when you do that, that's a universal signal of surrender. That, that, when you put your hands up in the air, that means, God, I surrender my life to you. God sees you. He he hears you. He knows you. And we're going to pray together as we close today, as we invite Jesus into your life, and we celebrate what he's about to do. And so, friend, if that's you in Montgomeryville, if you're in Plymouth Meeting, Limerick, Royersford, even watching online or right here in, in Phoenixville, and the Spirit of the Lord is drawing you right now. He's drawing you right now. Your life is not where it's supposed to be. If your heart stopped beating right now, you're not sure if you would spend eternity with with God in heaven because you have never received Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, and you need to right now, right now, February 2nd, 2020. Hey, friend, if that's you, and I can pray with you as we close, one step of courage, just shoot your hand straight up in the air if that's you. I want to know that I'm praying with you as we close. Come on, all over our campuses, just shoot your hand straight up in the air, and you can put it down in a second. I see hand right here. Is there anybody else? Hey, Pastor, that's me. That's me. I'm going to give my heart to Jesus Christ. I'm going to give my life to Jesus Christ right now. 
Come on, in Montgomeryville, if that's you, just, we're just going to wait one more second. In Limerick and Royersford and, and Plymouth meeting, you're just going to shoot your hand straight up in the air. And they're going to let me know all the way here in Phoenixville as we celebrate and we get to pray with you. Let's begin to pray, church, as people respond. Jesus, thank you for this day. Thank you for all that you've done. Thank you for all that you continue to do. Thank you for your word that never returns void. Lord, that it's more powerful than the words of a man. Lord, but you were here. You inhabited the praises of your people. And Lord, you showed up because the Bible says where two or more are gathered in your name, that you show up. And you've spoken through your word, and you've done what only you can do. You've changed hearts, Lord. You're, you're saving people, and you're setting somebody free. There's somebody in this place that they have been an addict their entire life. They have heard that spoken over their life. And Lord, one moment with you is shaking them to the core. It's changing who they are. They have a new mind. They have new eyes. They have a new heart, Lord. You're going to be with them from this point forward. The Bible says you're a friend that sticks closer than a brother. And Lord, we're grateful for all that you do, all that you continue to do. Lord, as we leave this place and we put a period at the end of this, this, this sermon series, well, let this not be the end, though. Lord, there's people that are seeking you, that want to experience you, that want to see you move in a mighty way. Lord, let the life that we live be because of a God-sized miracle. Let us never be satisfied with living a normal life. Lord, we want to see you do immeasurably more than we could ever ask, dream, or imagine. So, Lord, we're grateful. We're thankful. Lord, we're blessed. And Lord, we feel privileged and honored to once again be in your presence. Thank you for being with us, and thank you for speaking to us. In Jesus' name we pray. In Jesus' name we pray. Hey, church, one more time, let's shout amen together at all of our campuses.